Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now on Brexit, it has been an extraordinary 48 hours for the United Kingdom. Too much complexity even to know where to begin. And we must go to the true expert for Bloomberg News. And that is Anna Edwards on the green in Westminster. Anna, of the eight amendments, I tried to memorize them. I only got to two amendments. I'm sorry. That's okay, you're forgiven, Tom. Uh, well, all you needed to know was most of them went the government's way, I suppose. Uh, so um, most things did go the government's way, at least in the very short term. She won a victory of sorts, didn't she? She goes to, back to Brussels to try and renegotiate the backstop. Brussels has said no. They keep saying no. The UK says, that says that's just a negotiating position. So we wait to see what can possibly be achieved in two weeks that has not been achieved right. over the last two years. And could we be all back here on Valentine's Day looking at uh, amendments once again, Tom? And I'm reading the newspapers, and it's real simple. The Irish Prime Minister asked the European Union to hold their nerve. I believe somebody over in Brussels at some point said nothing's open for renegotiation. What is Prime Minister May trying to accomplish in Brussels, given that immediate response? Yeah, the immediate response has been very negative. I suppose uh, the linguists uh, have been passing the language and trying to work out if there is any room between the two to find some sort of compromise. So the EU has said no change to the withdrawal agreement, absolutely not. Um, the words used by Theresa May yesterday were that she was looking for legally binding changes. She didn't say she wanted to actually replace the backstop. So is that code for, can we write on a different piece of paper some legally binding words, a codicil as it's called? to satisfy both sides. Would that satisfy the European Research Group, though, the far uh, Brexiteer side of the Conservative Party? They've come together over the last 24 hours in an act of unity, and they're sending her back to Brussels to try and seek something, but would, whatever she comes back from Brussels with, would it be satisfactory to them? Uh, as I say, in two weeks, we could be back here again, doing this all again, looking at amendments, yeah. just like we did last night, around Article 50, extensions, and, uh, and blocking no deal. So we could still be talking about those things. Um, so, Anna, where's Labour in all of this? Well, incident, one of the interesting things happened last night in the uh, in the Commons when Theresa May stood up to speak after the results of all of these amendments were voted on and uh, Labour in the shape of Jeremy Corbyn, did say, OK, I'll come and meet you. And remember, he had uh, refused to do that for some time. So it seems as if he is willing to at least go and speak to Theresa May. Um, he will be a, a bit of a bystander, though, for the next two weeks also, I one assumes, because she is the one who's going to go back to Brussels and see what she can come back with in terms of rewriting that backstop. But, she, but he is at least going to meet her, which is progress uh, compared to the last few weeks. Stephen Stanley dropping by the studio, Amherst Pierpont, Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Stephen. What is the Fed Decision Day Guide over at your shop? Good morning. 
Well, I think, you know, the Fed has declared themselves on pause. So um, and it actually is kind of a good time for that, given that we haven't really had much data over the last month. So I, I think really the, the Fed wants to emphasize that they're being flexible, that they're listening. Uh, I think the markets viewed uh, for, for better, for worse in December that the Fed was somehow not listening to what the markets were trying to tell them. And so the Fed wants to uh, lend a sympathetic ear, even though ultimately, you know, they may end up having to raise rates further uh, later in the year. So, Stephen, we could talk about how they're going to reclaim optionality. I'm just wondering whether they're going to formalize patience on rates and flexibility on the balance sheet in the statement, in the news conference. Do you expect that to happen? Well, I think, you know, in terms of the statement, you've got the the forward guidance about continued uh, gradual rate hikes. And the question is really, are they going to continue to soften that or are they going to take it out altogether in January? Um, they Starting at the November FOMC minutes, they started uh, with the idea that they, uh, they do want to get away from forward guidance. So that does lend itself toward uh, a more flexible uh, stance. I don't know that they're going to want to talk too much about the balance sheet. Um, my guess is that you're going to have to ask uh, Chairman Powell a question to get much out of him on the balance sheet. What's the effect right now of the economy on the fiction of real yields that we still have? What's the effect right now of just diminished real yields from any of our experience? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, uh, we, we have peaked just above zero in terms of where uh, yields are um, relative to inflation. You mean real yields, yeah. Yeah, but we're still very low historically. And, I, you know, for my money, I, I still think the economy, as a result, uh, I think policy is relatively easy in the economy. Uh, still should have a lot of momentum. And certainly we've seen that in the uh, jobs numbers that we've gotten. And I think everything, we haven't yeah. gotten a lot of data, but the consumer seems to be still Well, the hard uh, data, track. Stephen, let's be clear and draw a distinction if we can. The hard data has still been absolutely fantastic in many aspects of this U.S. economy. The soft data has just started to roll over a little bit. A lot of people latched on to the consumer confidence numbers we had yesterday. And just to paint a picture for us here on radio, there was a bigger spread between the confidence in the here and now and the confidence about the future. Mm -hmm. And the confidence in the here and now substantially higher than the way people feel about the future. And a lot right. of people are concerned about that spread. Should they be? Well, I, you know, I would say let's wait a month and see what happens because the the survey was taken right in the middle of the government shutdown and that clearly had an effect on the way people were thinking about the future. Um, so, uh, you know, fact is we could be in another government shutdown in a month's time. So I'm not sure we, we have full resolution on that. But I would say um, that the fact that people are still feeling good about their actual situations is a good sign. We've talked about the tension between the market and the data. Chairman Powell talked about that very tension. And I'm wondering whether the chairman can sit there today and say that tension has resolved itself. Do you think it's too early to tell? Oh, it's way too early. Um, I think the the markets again. The markets are still talking about a recession either this year or next. Yeah. Um, and I just you know the Fed obviously we've seen their projections. They don't believe that. They don't believe it. Let's go to the why of that because I would suggest a lot of our listeners worldwide and coast to coast, coast to frozen coast, I should say, uh, actually believe in maybe not an NBER recession, but some form of lesser growth off of Make America Great Again growth. That's the the zeitgeist right now. Mm -hmm. You don't agree, right? Yeah, I think what the market is seeing is they say, okay, we think that growth topped out last year. So the pace right. of growth is going to slow down in 2019 versus 2018 and i and i don't think that there's a uh i think most people feel that it's a straight line yeah. once it starts on a downward path 
it's inevitable that it's going to make its way into negative territory. So, Stephen, global uncertainty has increased. Inflation is low enough that it gives them some space to be patient. I understand all of that. What I don't understand really is to what degree the trade debate down in Washington could open the door for the Federal Reserve later this year. Is it a big factor, a small factor? How much weight do you assign to the importance of that? I think it's a pretty big factor. I think what the markets are focused on is really the tariff situation, right? Because we've got the the big issues that I think are going to be that certainly the U.S. side wants to deal with this week around uh, intellectual property protection and some of these broad structural issues that are going to take years to hash out. But what the markets are really worried about is the possibility that tariffs are going to ratchet up in a month. Okay, that's NX, I believe, on Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX. How much of growth is tariffs or trade or NX? What percentage is it? Well, I mean, exports are about 12% of GDP, imports are about 15 um, But from one year to the next, in terms of looking at the growth, um, net exports tends to be very volatile, so it can have a big positive or negative contribution to GDP. It was pretty negative last year, and I think part of that was because firms were trying to front-load imports. Okay, and fair. Before but the does, it, does it threaten the C, which is 68 69 70% of the... Well, I think that's a great question and one that's my only good one today. Yeah, I I, I think the answer to that is that that the consumer is in (laughs) in pretty good shape. I mean, the labor market is strong, wages are rising. Can I digress here? You want to digress? Claims? We were in Davos? No, we were in Davos. We were in Davos. South Claims was 199,000. Yeah, stunning. Steve, Farrell's too young to understand this. You and I have never thought about that statistic. That's right. Yeah. We never, John, that's the outlier of outliers. We've been near multi decade lows for a long, long time on initial jobless claims. What I do think is interesting, Stephen, we're not even factoring in population change from That's decades right. ago. Oh, I excuse mean, me, I have that chart. It's even, Perfect it's for even radio. more stunning now relative to the size of the population. Sure, sure. I mean, up until this cycle, anything below 300 was considered extraordinary. Now we're talking about 200. Amazing. Stephen Stanley, great to catch up with you. Oh, can I Amherst ask a Pierpont, stupid question before Chief you go? Oh, please, sure. why not? Please, John, jump what in. What is cold questions. weather due to consumer shopping? Uh, probably not so great in the short run. Okay. Fed Day, it is always our joy, indeed our academic honor, to speak with Randall Krosner of the Booth School of Chicago. He joins us now, the former Fed governor as well. Randy, within all your experience, and it comes down to a choice set, an opportunity set that any chairman faces, how constrained is Chairman Powell into this meeting, or for that matter, as a set into the next two or three meetings? Does he have a wide set of choices, or is he limited? Well, I think, um, well, he, he has choices uh, open to him, but I don't think he's going to exercise those. I think he's going to stay in a, in a pretty limited lane. Uh, I think they're going to emphasize that they're going to be patient. I think they're going to emphasize that uh, they see some, uh, some clouds on the horizon. And uh, as they had mentioned in their December statement, that there are downside risks, although they probably will still say that the balance of risks is, is relatively uh, or the risks are relatively balanced. But uh, I think they're going to leave themselves uh, a little bit more wiggle room for maybe not moving quite as much as they were suggesting back in December. Randy, a lot of people are drawing parallels with the 05-06 period. 
um, of a decade or so ago. You were on the FOMC around that time. Randy, does it feel like that to you? Were there any kind of parallels that you would draw? And, and what lesson would you have learned from that period that the Federal Reserve can apply today? So I think that um, uh, the, the Fed feels that they've raised rates to roughly the area where they are neither being expansionary nor contractionary, the so-called neutral range. And you know, now there's debating, well, should they go a little bit further or not? Are they seeing inflation pressure or not? And so far, they really haven't seen a lot of inflation pressure, but there's a lot of uh, uncertainty about whether the hot labor market will lead to more inflation or not. And, um, and that's why they continue to debate. And that's why I think that the markets were unsure of where they would be because people were uh, espousing different, uh, different points of view. Well, Randy, there is this belief that the Federal Reserve is now done. That's a widely held belief on Wall Street that perhaps there is nothing left for this cycle. Do you think the Federal Reserve has a duty to reclaim some optionality at today's meeting? That's well said. So I don't think they need to reclaim the optionality. I think they still have it. And uh, sometimes the markets just need to, uh, to sort of uh, uh, catch up to, uh, to, to where yeah. the Fed is. Uh, certainly the you know, expectations of interest rate increases and, uh, and, uh, have, have changed quite a bit over time. Uh, and so they can increase or decrease depending on underlying inflation and uh, underlying economic activity. Uh, so I don't think he's going to try to push that. I think he feels that he has the option if he needs it, if the underlying data uh, would want to push them to do more. Uh, but I don't think he's going to push that today. Professor Krosner, we really enjoyed you in Davos. We thought you were great there when you got yourself out of the snowbank uh, to talk to us. But the, <laughs> that you missed it, Randy. The theme in Davos was about the effect of low real rates on the banking system. Okay, Europe, we mm-hmm. all get with negative interest rates is hugely distorted. How distorted is our world right now with these low real rates that we enjoy in the United States? Are, is the Fed looking at it in the meeting that were significantly distorted, or is it a non-event? Well, uh, that's a, it's a very interesting question, because if you look over a longer horizon, like from um, uh, back 30 years, real interest rates, that is the inflation-adjusted rates, have been falling globally for 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 decades, really, since um, since the 1980s, so 30, 40 years. And so uh, a lot of people say, well, it's just a recent thing that central banks have pushed rates down so low, but it's really been part of a longer-term a longer term trend. And, and I think that has to do with the supply and demand of savings, and really introducing an enormous amount of, uh, of uh, savings from China into the world, world economy. The U.S. has now raised rates, um, and so we're at least having a real rate of slightly positive, unlike most countries of the world. So I don't think the Fed is worried that we're sort of out of step with the rest of the world. And I think they would like to see rates be a little bit uh, more uh, more positive, real rates be a bit more positive. But um, yeah. I think they're comfortable with where we are at the moment. Randy, can we talk about the weather just briefly? Um, you're a man that knows Chicago well. Um, I, I understand you're not in Chicago, and I imagine you're happy you're not right now. But just your experience Correct. with the weather and what it means for the economy, we are going into a real cold snap over the next week and potentially a whole lot longer. Uh, certainly, uh, it, it is uh, not so warm in Chicago, but I am in Hong Kong, where we have a, uh, a new uh, campus and uh, complex here, and uh, we just had an opening, and it's really, really spectacular. And it's particularly spectacular because it's not freezing. Um, 
These cold snaps can have uh, negative impacts on uh, economic activity. It'll depend on how long it's sustained. If it's just a day or two, it really won't leave much of a mark. Randall Krosner, thank you so much. The former governor of the Federal Reserve of Wisconsin, 65-degree Hong Kong. He is, John, may I state editorially, Professor Krosner is smarter than we are. Yes. (laughs) Let us migrate forward to trade, which is uh, most important right now. Let us do that with Deborah Lett, Paulson Institute Vice Chairman. Deborah, great to have you with us on the program. High-level trade talks commencing in Washington, D.C. What is your base case this week? Well, it's a very positive sign that Vice Premier Liu He is here. And the chances, I think, are good that they'll get some kind of framework deal. Not, not the final deal, but at least enough to, to have it go to the two presidents to finalize. So, Deborah, is that something a little bit more than talks about talks? What do you think the framework will actually look like? Well, there are several components that need to be included in any kind of final deal. One, the president has made clear that he wants to see additional exports from the United States to China, so expect the Chinese to announce purchases of U.S. products. They've already announced some in the agricultural area, including commitments on soybeans. And then there needs to be market access for companies. You know, it's, it is, um, doesn't make yeah. sense at all when you've got the largest banks in the world in China and you can't have a 100% owned securities firm. Where are we on the legal history of joint ventures? If we're going to do more with trade, there has to be combinations, mergers, joint ventures. Can U.S. companies still go in and do JVs to get things done in China? Legally, they're allowed, of course, to go in and do joint ventures. But I think what the government, U.S. government, is pushing for is that the choice of a joint venture should be up to the company and based on commercial terms not to be required by the Chinese government. Obviously, we understand if there are some sectors that are sensitive, but the fact, as I was saying, if you have, you know, that Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan can't have an 100 percent owned securities firm is just outrageous. Deborah, we are at a point where maybe China is beyond having the standard excuse of an emerging market whereby they need to do these kind of things. Deborah, do you think we are past that point with China? Is China developed enough that they can no longer lean on that emerging market status as an excuse? I think in in some sectors it might be an excuse. Uh, But in those, we need to see some kind of timetable for opening. But certainly in some sectors, particularly in the financial and technology area, there's no excuse at all. Deborah Lair with us. She's Vice Chairman Paulson Institute, and we could, we, are, we could have her on for an hour to talk about some of the questions of antiquities. She's expert in the world's antiquities. Let's dovetail trade into that ultimate trade, Deborah Lair, which is tourism. And I can go back to 1974 and the magic of finding the Terracotta Army in China. Everyone goes there. Everybody makes a trek. It's one of the few reasons to go inland from the Pacific Rim for American tourists. Is tourism part of the trade debate? And where is that right now? Uh, That's an excellent question. It hasn't really been part of the debate, although it's one of the U.S.'s great exports and certainly one of China's great exports. The numbers of Chinese tourists continue to grow significantly. Yeah. And it's become a huge potential market for, you know, countries like France, which is the number one destination, and even now growing for countries in the Middle East. Well, I mean, John Farrell sees that when he's in Gucci on Fifth Avenue. I get that. But what about (laughs) us over there? When Americans go over to China, has that diminished with all the uproar of the last uh, couple of years? 
It has. Uh, there is not the same numbers of, of American tourists traveling, even though there's a significant number. It's It is been um, dropped because there have been concerns, including travel warnings coming out of the State Department recently. Well, let's talk about something that came out of the Department of Justice in the last couple of days. This following paragraph. The alleged conduct described in the indictment occurred from 2012 to 2014 and includes an internal Huawei announcement that the company was offering bonuses to employees who succeeded in stealing confidential information from other companies. Ratcheting up the pressure on Huawei ahead of these trade talks. Deborah, how does this feature as these individuals sit down in Washington, D.C. to try and come up with what you describe as a trade framework? Is Huawei the elephant in the room? I'm not sure if it's the elephant in the room, but it's certainly like the Chinese government going after Microsoft, IBM, and Apple all at the same time. I mean, it's a, it's a national champion in terms of it's a company that people are very proud of. And while Huawei has been under its scrutiny for almost 20 years, this is the first time they've gone after it in a significant way. And yeah. the Justice Department has decided to go after an individual, which is what has really gotten it, uh, people's attention in China versus just the company like they did with ZTE. But from where you sit, to John's good question, the Chinese at these tables of trade can't ignore that, can they? given the history and heritage of Ms. Meng with the Communist Party? No, they can't ignore it. Yeah. I mean, it's a very significant issue. And as I said, it's it's gotten a lot of attention in China because they have gone after an individual versus the company. And while they understand, maybe not completely, but at least a little bit, that our justice system works separately from the political system, yeah. the fact that the president did come out and say it could potentially be part of a trade deal led many to believe that this was political. Right. This has been very helpful. Deborah Lair, thank you so much. She's vice chairman of the Paulson Institute and greatly appreciate it. John, I thought you phrased that question just perfectly about, you know, the, the there's, as she said, if it was AT&T or Microsoft or Apple, we'd be in an uproar. Yeah. But Absolute let's, uproar. Let's be clear about something, though. The Chinese have blocked many American companies from operating within China. Yes. Yes. So I know this is a very different, it's not, it's not apples for apples, but certainly let's not pretend that we have sort of unfettered access into Chinese no, markets. No, we do not. I mean, that is why I, we're I sitting would, around the table down in Washington today, would, today I, because the United States does not. I would say on and off the record, the thunderous consensus of every CEO I've ever talked to is JVs always disappoint in China. If you are lucky, folks, on a Fed day, you can, well, you can run the shop at the Richmond Fed for years with Marvin Goodfriend. That's what Mr. Broadus did. Or if you're lucky, you can go to one of the coolest schools in the country, Washington and Lee, which is basically in the middle of nowhere where everybody's smart and well attended. But if you're really lucky, you can go to one of the most beautiful high schools in this nation. It is Thomas Jefferson High School. It is on the National Register of Historic Whatever. Al Broadus, what was it like? To be in that building as a kid, to Thomas Jefferson High School. Gosh, it's been a long time, uh, Tom. Uh, I graduated in '57, but uh, you, that building is a ma- magnificent uh, building. Uh, not many people uh, recognize it. It's uh, you know, obviously uh, not. Uh, 
doesn't look the way it did 50 years ago, but it was a, a huge school at the time. We had about 2,000 students. Yeah. Of course, a whole different era, but... That was uh, back in another lot, time. Lots but of good people there. It's back when we built schools like Jules, folks, and that's something maybe we could learn from in the past. Al brought us, I want to go right to inflation right now. You've always been uh, not rigid, but, you know, watchful of inflation. In the hindsight of a decade, what did the inflationistas get wrong about this time of disinflation? Uh, it's, well, you know, of course, I have most of my career, Tom was yes. uh, uh, one of fighting uh, yes. to, to bring inflation down and establish Fed credibility for the ability to do that and the commitment to do that uh, for the long run. We got there, I think, about the end of the of the last century uh, and have been dealing with a different situation now. Uh, and it's been tough, and it's created this this problem. Uh, of low interest rates, uh, the zero bound uh, is an issue that we've had to deal with, on, and you know what's come out of that quantitative easing and 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 all of that, and that's you know that's still a work in progress. Uh, I think uh, I think I had left the Fed by the time we got to the crisis in in uh, '08 and '09. Uh, my personal belief is that while that was rough and 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 ragged in in many ways, I, I believe that uh, Bernanke and and Janet Yellen and others at the Fed at the time did a great job of getting us through that without even worse consequences. Uh, so now we're settling down and, and trying to, to, to still trying to deal with some of the problems that that creates. Dr. Broadus, we're going to hear from the Fed later this afternoon. Um, I think most people are probably focusing a little bit more on the balance sheet management from the Fed. What do you expect to hear today? Uh, you know, that's I, I, I'm not sure we're going to hear anything, but we may. Uh, sorry for the ambivalent uh, answer, but uh, let, let me try to uh, put it this way. I think there are a number of people out there, uh, some in the political arena, some market professionals and, and traders who would like to see some indication from the Fed that it will back off from its current program of trying to reduce the balance sheet, not necessarily end the program, but slow it down, maybe pause it. Uh, uh, those on from a political perspective, there there's some who feel that this is an additional element of tightening by the Fed that's unwarranted in the current economic situation. From the standpoint of the market, profession, financial market professionals, I think there is a view uh, uh, on the part of many of these folks that uh, th- this is creating a liquidity problem. Uh, a scarcity of reserves, which is which is part of the reason for some of the vol- volatility in markets. Okay, against that background, uh, I, this this would be my take. There, there's something at the Fed itself, within the Fed, there is a discussion going on that is not really about current economic conditions and current monetary policy prospects, but about a, a, a really down-on-the-weeds issue, which is, uh, how the Fed operates, its operating procedure for controlling its target federal fund rate. And without trying to go into any of the uh, long detail about this, a recent development is a growing view within the Fed that, the, that they can, over the long run, adopt a control procedure which would allow the balance sheet to be larger. In other words, it would still be smaller than than uh, it is now, but would allow the Fed not to reduce it so much. 
Uh, if that, uh, I don't think they've made that decision. I think it's likely to be discussed at this meeting. Uh, if they were to reach some sort of consensus that this is a good thing, then, then Chairman Powell might, in his uh, press conference, hint at that and maybe give some sense that uh, that the Fed's terminal balance sheet level will be higher than had been thought before, and that might create the possibility of some slowing in this process or even some pause in that. So give us some uh, sense of, of that's what... That's a long answer, but I hope that answers the question. No, absolutely. I'm just kind of... I think most people are trying to get a sense of where that level might be. It's certainly not as low as $2.5 trillion. Is it... Do you have a best guess of where you think that might come out, or where they think that you might know, be most comfortable? It's hard to say, but I, I, would, I would say that it would... If, if the at, at an earlier mm-hmm. stage of this, when they when they first began this process, I think the number you just cited, two and a half, maybe a little bit more, was sort of thought that would be the end game. Uh, under this new development that I just described, it could be, I guess, as high as three and a half, or, or maybe somewhat below uh, four trillion. But that's you know that's a guess. Are are we going to see Al Broadus? A history of forward guidance anytime soon? Are we are we able to say that forward guidance is done? We're back to data dependency, and it's time to write a Richmond Fed history like Thomas Humphrey would write. Well, uh, you know, I think forward guidance has has played. That's to go back to your earlier question, Tom. In, in this new world uh, of uh, uh, more where deflation is a greater risk than it was, and all that's yeah. from that. Ford guidance has, has been an important tool that the Fed has been able to use uh, to to deal with the challenge face, that it faces with with the uh, with low interest rates and the zero bound. Uh, so it's an important uh, tool, and it's one that needs to be understood better and analyzed. We really haven't gotten that yet, but at some point, I think economic uh, historians like Tom Humphrey, a wonderful colleague uh, of mine. Uh, but other people as well uh, will, will look at at this, yeah. uh, evaluate how well it was uh, implemented uh, over the last, let's say, 15 yeah. years or so, and maybe learn something about how mm-hmm. to do it better going forward. That's still that's still all all a work in progress, Tom. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, El Broadus, uh, who really brought history to the Fed uh, with his term at the Richmond uh, Fred. Tom Humphrey, I've had the ability to interview. I love what the giant Mark Blaug said about Thomas Humphrey of the Richmond Fed, the undisputed master of the history of monetary uh, economics. I'll try to get out on Twitter the wonderful Richmond uh, compendium of what Tom Humphrey did over his wonderful career on economic history. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.